0: Matthew 7, and we'll read from verse 21 to the end of the chapter. Not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, Lord. Have we not prophesied in your name, and in your name cast out devils, and in your name done many wonderful works? And then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. Therefore, whosoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him unto a wise man who built his house Upon a rock, and the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that hears these sayings of mine and does them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon sand. The rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell and great was the fall of it. And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Let's pray once again. Heavenly Father, we, we again thank you and we praise you for sending your son into the world and for him speaking these things. And we thank you for this time to hear from him. And Lord, I pray that you would fill us each one with the Holy Spirit, that you give us ears to hear and that you would take the words that are spoken this morning and the words that we read and you would help us, God, and enable us to think bigger than just what we can see and to hear from you And realize that you want to speak to us through your word and through your son. And that you have a message for each one of us. So God, help us to hear from you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to ask you a question. What do you think of when you think of the word authority? They have to do these word association things, right? Authority. What do you think of? What comes to mind? Power. Here's a joke. (laughs) An authority. So there's an environmental protection agent from the government, and he goes to an old man's farm. A man's been farming for many years, and this is a young environmental protection man. So he goes to this farm, and he shows up on the farm unannounced, and he says, I'm here to check to see if your farm is up to code. And the old man says, okay, it's fine, but uh, don't go in that field over there, the old man says. And the young guy thinks that the old man is trying to hide from him because maybe his farm's not up to code. And he says, he says, look, I am a federal agent from the Department of Environmental Protection, and I reserve the right to go wherever I choose to go and I'm going to go wherever I want. Here's my badge. Take a good look at it. And so the old man says, okay. (laughs) So the young man goes into that field, and the old man goes his way, and about five minutes later, the young man starts hearing screams and shrieks. And the, or the old man starts hearing sh- screams and shrieks. And so the old man comes out of his house and he sees the young environmental protection agent tearing across the field and a huge long bull chasing the agent. And the guy's screaming and yelling for help. And the old man goes over and he yells, show him your badge! Show him your badge! <laughs> there was an internet survey done asking people what they thought of when they thought of authority. And most people have a negative view of authority. When people think of authority, they often think of something that's bad, not good. They, the people made comments like uh, tyrannical governments or dictatorial parents or lousy bosses who just make you do things and don't really appreciate you. These were the ideas people thought of of authority. But authority, in and of itself, isn't a bad thing. Authority is not bad or good. It's just something that is a tool that can be used for bad and good. It is just a reality. If you look in the dictionary, the definition of authority, there's actually multiple different definitions. It's sort of a hard word to define, but you could define it as power to command. Power to command. Authority can be derived from a legal system. So... A legal system could give the power to command to somebody arbitrarily and you just have to obey this person or else you'll get penalized. Or authority can also be derived from people esteeming that person and recognizing that they should be listened to when they give a command because they know. So it can be derived from a system or from men's esteem. I think of in the military, all of the different ranks in the military. When I think of authority, that's the first thing that comes to my mind. So you have all these different ranks, from private up to general, and the rank is supposed to correlate to your experience and your skill. If, if a private joins the army, and he turns out to be a pretty poor soldier and has poor judgments, he probably shouldn't be promoted, and he'll, he'll remain a private his whole career. But as people show characteristics and leadership qualities and skill, then they're promoted and they get more and more authority as their rank goes up. At least that's how it's supposed to be. But it's not always that way. And people often complain because there are people who have authority that you don't really esteem, you don't respect, you don't think they should be in that position. Sometimes you might think, I think I should be in that position instead of them. I think I'm more qualified. In the World War II series Band of Brothers, if you've ever seen that, Uh, One episode in that series, there's a lieutenant who's a politician. He's not a soldier at all, but because of his connections, he got rank of lieutenant, and he goes to the front lines to lead this battalion uh, only basically for political reasons. He wants to be able to say that he fought in the war and, and these things. And the rest of the soldiers, who are very experienced, don't appreciate this lieutenant. And the lieutenant is just going through the motions, and there's some tension there. But finally, when they get into battle, then the situation shows itself to be, uh, shows itself for what it is, and the lieutenant basically melts and falls apart. And he's trying to command the man. He's trying to say, go over there, go over there, and he doesn't know what to do, and you can tell he's lost until finally they say, get that lieutenant out of there and put a new one in, and things change. Authority. Now, it's clear that the entire Sermon on the Mount is a counterattack against the doctrine of the Pharisees. And this is made clear even by the last comment that's made in our chapter that we read. After the Sermon on the Mount is accomplished, we hear that the people are astonished at Jesus' doctrine. Why? Because, it says in verse 29, he taught the people as one having authority and not like the scribes. So it really shows you that the Sermon on the Mount is really Jesus versus the Pharisees, not only in what Jesus says, not only in his content, as we saw as we've been studying the Sermon on the Mount, and this is our last sermon, the last Sunday looking at this sermon, but not only in the content of Jesus' words is he different than the Pharisees, but even in his manner, he's different. They say he teaches differently, and he teaches with authority. If you go online and type up Orthodox Judaism, because Orthodox Judaism, there's different kinds of Judaism today, but Orthodox Judaism really preserves the the old heritage of the Pharisees. If you listen to the teachings of the Orthodox Jews online or read some of their books, you'll notice something, that they're always quoting some rabbi to back up their points. And that's the practice that has been carried on since the days of Jesus. The Pharisees didn't speak like Jesus. Jesus said, you've heard that it he has said this, but this is what I say. And the Pharisees say, this isn't what I say. This is what it's been passed down to us. The Pharisees are always appealing to someone else. And Jesus says, this is what I say. Jesus is speaking as one who's experienced and qualified, and the others are just sort of always passing it off to someone else. And the people picked up on this. There is no one, brothers and sisters, more qualified to tell you about spiritual things than Jesus Christ. There is no one who has more authority to tell you what you need to do to save your own soul to be right with God than Jesus Christ. Not men, but the Son of Man and the Son of God. Let's flip around a little bit. Turn with me back to Matthew chapter 1. A short little review of what we've already learned in Matthew. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Who is Jesus and what makes him so qualified to be our teacher? Right from the very beginning of Matthew, Matthew tells us the genealogy of Jesus. And the point he makes here is not only that Jesus is the son of Abraham, and that's relating to all the prophecies that God gave to Abraham that one would come and bless the world, but also Jesus is the son of David. Jesus is the king that God promised from the beginning of the world who would come and promised to David that one would come and reign on his throne forever. Remember those beautiful prophecies in Isaiah about a king coming and reigning, and of the increase of his government, there be no end. This is God's king. God has chosen Jesus to be the king of the world. If God chose Jesus to be the king, therefore God knows the right man. Look at verse 23 of chapter 1. Jesus is not only the son of David, he's not only the king of kings, he's also God. Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which everyone knows is interpreted God is with us. God is with us. Jesus is born of a virgin. How many people here this morning have been born of a virgin? None. How many people in history have ever been born of a virgin? One. Jesus. And he's born of a virgin, it says here in verse 20, by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul says this in Romans chapter 1 that Jesus was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, but he was declared to be the Son of God with power by the Holy Spirit. He's God. He's not like you and I, but he's like you and I, but he's not. Verse 21. And he, she shall bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. You're going to call his name Jehovah saves, for he shall, he shall save his people from their sins. Who is Jesus? He is the Savior. He is the one and the only one who will save you from your sins. As God, he's the only one who can do that. Jehovah alone can save. Chapter 2, verse 2 to 6. Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. And when Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus is the, it is written by the prophets, And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of you shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Here we see Matthew makes it very clear, Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the one that the prophets foretold. And now he's come. Chapter 3, verse 3. John the Baptist says, or Matthew says of John the Baptist, For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. And John the Baptist says in verse 11, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that comes after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Whose fan is in his hand, he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into his garner. He will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Who is this Jesus? John the Baptist says, he's the Lord He's coming after me. He's mightier than I. I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. You ever felt that way about somebody? Not worthy to untie their shoes. He's coming after me. He's mightier than I. Make way for the Lord. And when he comes, he'll baptize with the Holy Spirit, but he'll burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Verse 17 of chapter 3. God says from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. God gives his complete recommendation and he points us to his son. He never says this about anyone else. And in another place he says, listen to him. On the Mount of Transfiguration, he said, listen to him. In chapter 4, we see Jesus defeat the devil. Now that's something. How many of you have ever been tempted by the devil? Anyone? <laughs> and failed. <laughs> yes? Do you always win? No. Do you ever give in to temptation and sin? I do. Jesus did not ever once give in to temptation. And he defeated the devil on all counts. Who is Jesus? Who can do that but God? In verse 16, we hear that Jesus is the light of the world. The people which sat in darkness saw a great light. And to those who sat in the region of the shadow of death, light is sprung up. So Jesus is the light of the world. He's what gives this world light. He's what gives this world vision and understanding. And lastly, verse 23 and 24 of chapter 4. Jesus went about all of Galilee. So the virgin born, son of God, the Lord from heaven, the king of kings, the son of David, is now teaching throughout Galilee and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing all manner of sicknesses and all manner of diseases among the people. And his fame went throughout all of Syria. They brought unto him all the sick people that were taken with diverse diseases and torments, and those which were possessed with the devil, and those which were lunatic, and those that had the palsy, and he healed them. Not a case that he couldn't solve. Do you think Jesus is qualified to teach? Do you think he's, or is he simply like a scribe who's come along and said, well, I don't know, but so-and-so said, and I think that sounds good, so I'm giving it to you? Is he like that lieutenant who doesn't really know what he's doing when the battle gets strong? When there's no battle, he's, he's just all talk. But When the battle happens, he says, I don't know what to do, and he melts and he falls apart. Is that like him? No. In the Gospel of John, it's even more clear. Jesus says that he came from heaven to tell us about the things of heaven. So he's eminently qualified to teach us. And brothers and sisters, now let's turn our attention to what he teaches us. We've just been studying the Sermon on the Mount. But notice again in verse 23 of chapter 4, it says that he goes about preaching what? What does Jesus have to say when he comes from heaven to us to talk to us? Yeah, the good news. Good news of the kingdom of God. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. That's, that saying he preaches the good news of the kingdom of God captures really the essence of the Sermon on the Mount. Isn't it good that the Son of God has good news for us? Sometimes we take that for granted. But isn't it amazing that when Jesus came, he came bringing gospel or good news. It's a wonderful thing to know that the thing that Jesus shows us is that God has, has good tidings of peace for mankind. He has good tidings of peace for that obnoxious coworker that you work with. He has good tidings of peace for your brothers, your sisters, your mom and your dad. He has good tidings of peace for your enemies. The message from heaven to earth is gospel. And that's what we find in the Sermon on the Mount, the gospel of the kingdom. I've said this before, but the Sermon on the Mount is all about the kingdom of God. Now, I'd like to, us to turn a few more pages, and I want to show you that the kingdom of God is synonymous with salvation. The kingdom of God is synonymous with salvation. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 19. The good news of the kingdom of God could also be the good news of salvation. Matthew 19. Famous story here. Rich young ruler. Verse 16. Matthew 19, verse 16. Notice very carefully what the the text says. And behold, one came and said unto him, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? He's asking about eternal life. And Jesus said unto him, Why do you call me good? There is no one good but God. But if you want to enter, that's an important word we've seen in the Sermon on the Mount. If you, and don't just read this from a distance, now apply it to yourself, Ross, If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. So Jesus is not lying. He's saying entrance into life requires righteousness. Of course, we know how the story goes. Now look what Jesus says in verse 23. The the man has asked How do I get into eternal life? How do I have eternal life? Jesus said, if you want eternal life, keep the commandments. The man says, I do keep the commandments. Jesus says, really? Sell everything you've got. Okay, that's too much. So you don't keep the commandments. And verse 23, Jesus says, Verily I say unto you that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of God. And again, I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. So notice how eternal life and life is related to the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard it, they were exceedingly amazed and said, Who then can be saved? And Jesus beheld them and said, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. So notice that the kingdom of God is synonymous with eternal life and salvation. Because after Jesus says it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom, the disciples say, who can be saved then? Chapter 13. Chapter 13, verse 37. When Jesus comes preaching the good news of the kingdom, it's serious stuff. And we need to realize that it has to do with our salvation. Verse thirty seven. And he answered and said unto them, He that sows the good seed is the Son of Man, the field is the world, the good seed are the children of the kingdom, and the tares are the children of the wicked one. You could only be one of one of two. The enemy that sowed them is the devil, the harvest is the end of the age, the reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be at the end of this age. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, they shall gather out of his kingdom All things that offend and those which do iniquity and shall cast them into a furnace of fire, there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. Once again, we see that the kingdom of God is synonymous with salvation. And in order to be saved and enter the kingdom of God, you must be righteous. I hope that's very clear as we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount. Turn with me to Matthew 18. Verse 8 and 9. Matthew 18. 8 and 9. Now we've heard this on the Sermon on the Mount. We've we've heard this during the sermon. Jesus says, if your hand or your foot offend thee, cut them off, and cast them from thee, it is better for you to enter into life maimed and lame, rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. Some people say that Christianity or the Bible doesn't teach in hell and everlasting fire, but Jesus sure did. And if your eye offend you, pluck it out and cast it from you, it is better for you to enter life with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell. So once again, two ways, everlasting fire or life, and the difference is righteousness. If something's causing you to sin, you must remove it so that you can enter life. You can't be unrighteous and enter life, is what Jesus is saying. Interesting, in the Gospel of Mark in this very place, Jesus says the same thing, but instead of saying life, he says the kingdom of God. He said it's better for you to lose your arm and your leg and to enter into the kingdom of God than for you to go to everlasting fire. That's what he says in Mark. And lastly, before we go back to chapter 7, turn to chapter 21. Chapter 21, very, very important little passage. Verse 31 and 32 starting in the middle of verse 31, Jesus is now speaking to the Pharisees, and he says, Truly I say unto you, not so says Rabbi Shemai. Truly I say unto you, that the publicans, the tax collectors and the harlots, the guys who you say aren't going to make the kingdom of God, go into the kingdom of God before you. For John, now here's why. Why did the harlots and the tax collectors get in? Because John came in the way of righteousness, and you believed him not, but the publicans and the harlots believed him, and you, when you had seen it, you didn't repent afterwards that you might believe him. So here again, the entrance into the kingdom of God, the harlots and the tax collectors are getting in, the Pharisees aren't getting in, and the issue is righteousness. Once again, you see, this is why Jesus was infuriated by the Pharisees. The people that he's most harsh against is the Pharisees because, as he says in another place, you shut the door to the kingdom of God. You yourselves don't go in. And here we saw that they don't go in. John came to you in the way of righteousness. He said what he said. You didn't believe him and you didn't go in. You yourself don't go in, but you prevent others from going in also by your teaching. You shut the door to the kingdom of God. The Pharisees shut the door by obscuring what righteousness is all about. The Pharisees obscured righteousness because righteousness is how you get into the kingdom. Now, by saying that, I don't mean that they looked unrighteous. By all appearances, the Pharisees looked like they were righteous. The Pharisees talked like they were righteous, and everyone thought they were righteous. But they were actually unrighteous. And that's what false prophets do, and that's why they're so effective at shutting the door. They shut the door to the kingdom of God, yet everyone believes that they've entered. And everyone believes them when they say, follow me and do as I do. And you'll enter the kingdom of God, when in fact they themselves haven't even entered in. They themselves are not even righteous, and they're teaching falsehood. Because they're actually against righteousness. And here's how you know, brothers and sisters. Listen carefully. Here's how you know when someone is against righteousness, even though they appear to be for righteousness. They will come to you and say, in order to enter the kingdom of God, okay. every other religion except for Christianity says this. They might not use the phrase kingdom of God, but it means the same thing, salvation and life. In order for you to enter into the kingdom of God, you must keep the commandments. You must obey God. You must do good and do what God says. Now, all you need to do is ask that person, do you obey God? If what you say is true, that entrance into the kingdom of God is, requires righteousness, which no one disagrees with. And in order to be righteous, all you do is have to obey, you have to work, keep the commandments. Then ask them, okay, if that's true, do you do it? And what do they say? Well... They're the Wellers. <laughs> well, yeah, I keep the commandments. Not perfectly, though. Wait, but you said a second ago that in order to be saved, you have to keep the commandments. Yeah. Well, do you do it? Well, no one's perfect. All you got to do is try. Just do your best. Your best not perfect, but it's okay. Wait a second. Do you have to keep the commandments or do you not have to keep the commandments? Well... And Jesus exposes this kind of an attitude as lawless. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us exactly what the law requires, doesn't he? It's not this, well, I don't actually commit adultery because I don't, you know, actually go and commit the actual act of adultery. I don't actually commit murder because, Jesus says, if you have anger in your heart towards another person, you're guilty and you're ready for hellfire. If you look with lust upon a woman, and you, you have committed adultery with her in your heart. And when God tells you to love your neighbor, he means you are to do to that person just as you would have them do unto you. And anything less than this is disobedience to the law. If you want to be like God, be perfect. If you want to be righteous then you need to have a righteousness that's greater than the scribes and the Pharisees. I'll be so bold as to say, if you want to be righteous and enter the kingdom of God, you need to have a righteousness that's greater than the Mormon apostles and prophets. You need to have a righteousness that's greater than the Orthodox Jewish rabbis. And you need to have a righteousness that's greater than the Muslim imams imams. You need to have a righteousness greater than all those guys. All those guys say that you need to keep the commandments. None of those guys are perfect. And if you ask them, well, do you keep the commandments? They'll say, yeah. Perfectly? Well, no. Jesus says, you hypocrite. How dare you teach other people that you have to keep the commandments to get into the kingdom when you yourself don't? And you disregard what the law actually says. You see, if the law didn't demand perfection, then none of, most people wouldn't be in danger. Because most people are, you know, doing their best, and most people are nice people, most people are good in the eyes of these people. Eh, only a few people will go to hell, they say. Don't you hear this all the time? The reason why these, these false religions say that only a few people will will perish and most people will go to heaven is because they're lawless and they're not believing the truth about the law. And they basically are wellers who are saying, all you got to do is obey, kind of this try your best half-hearted thing. It's not perfection that God requires. Well, brothers and sisters, if it wasn't perfection that God requires, then Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was wrong. And he didn't need to come into the world to save us from our sins because we weren't really sinners anyway because we're all trying our best. And God requires all, that's all God requires is our best. Who are you going to listen to? Jesus or the scribes and the Pharisees? The guys that say, well, so-and-so said this and -and so-and-so said this and this is what I think and this is what I think. Or Jesus who tells you that not many people are going to enter into life because there's many false prophets who are going to people are going to believe them and they're going to go to perdition. Who are, you going to, who are you going to believe? The son of God who speaks with authority or these imposters? Those who claim to be for the commandments and the law are actually lawless. They don't honor the law. They don't believe the law. They don't obey the law and they shut the kingdom of heaven from men as long as you believe that you must obey the law in order to be saved and you feel like you are doing it you are lawless and you're a liar 1 John chapter 1 verse 8 says if anyone says that he has no sin he's a liar and deceives himself and the truth is not in him let me just say that again If you believe that you must keep the commandments in order to be saved, and you feel like you're doing okay, you're lawless. The law demands perfection. And if you really believe that you had to keep the law to be saved, you wouldn't feel okay. You should be trembling. And this brings us to a very important question, which I hope we can all answer. What is the purpose of the law? What is the purpose of the law? What is the purpose of the commandments? What is the purpose of Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount when he explains what the law truly requires? That it requires absolute perfection. What is the purpose? And, brothers and sisters, this is one of the greatest mysteries of the Bible. We shouldn't underestimate this or take it for granted. But understanding what the true purpose of the law is is one of the greatest mysteries of the Bible. If you know it, you must hold to it with all your might. If you don't know it, you need to learn this lesson. That the purpose of the law was to show you that God requires perfection in the law. That's what true righteousness is. So that you might learn that you cannot obtain righteousness by obedience to the law and that you must find salvation and righteousness through the grace of Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of the commandments of God. Have you learned that lesson? The whole point of the law is to show you that you can't be saved by obedience to it, that you need the grace of Jesus Christ. That you can't, but God can. Just as Jesus said to the disciples in Matthew 19, what's impossible with men is possible with God. That's the whole point of the gospel, brothers and sisters. It's looking away from yourself to the power of God. As long as you're looking at yourself and what you need to do and that you need to obey, you're still looking at your own strength and your own power and what I can do. You need to realize that you're helpless. You need to realize that you're deserving eternal fire. And you need to realize that God can do the impossible thing, which is save you. What you can't, he can, and he did because he loves you. And it's only when you realize that you're in a helpless situation, that you're a sinner, that you can't do it, that you'll realize his love. Because as long as you think that you're a pretty good person, you can say all day that God loves you, and many people do, but they don't know what what God's love really is. They don't know the essence of that love. That the amazing thing about God's love is that he loves you even though you're a hell-deserving sinner. Isn't that an amazing love? Isn't it amazing, brothers and sisters, that you can say as a Christian this morning, as Tim was saying, God loves me. And his love for me is not because I'm worthy of it. His love for me is not because I'm a good person. His love for me is not because I'm trying my best. But he loves me even though I was his enemy and even though I'm not a good person and even though what I deserve is hellfire. His love for me sent his son to pay for my sins on the cross, to pay that penalty, to die for me, to save me as a sinner. That's how much he loves me. That is an amazing love. If it was anything less than that, we wouldn't come together on Sunday mornings and sing about his love. We'd come together on Sunday mornings and sing about something else. The importance and preciousness of understanding the law. The law humbles you. It shows you who you really are. All you got to do is be honest. Don't be a weller. If someone asks you, do you keep the commandments, don't say, well, be honest. If you're a sinner, say, no, I don't. And therefore, if salvation comes by obedience to the law, I'm not going to be saved. Humble yourself and give glory to God. And it's through knowing the truth about your sin and the law that you come to see the love of God. The whole purpose of God's giving the law at Mount Sinai, the whole Old Testament history of a people struggling to obey the law and failing, was to show us the love of God and the grace of God. As long as you follow the Pharisees' doctrine, you make that whole thing void. And Jesus didn't come to make the law void. So brothers and sisters, this is the whole teaching of Jesus. The whole point of the Sermon on the Mount was to show us the true purpose of the law and to point us to something else Himself. Turn back to Matthew chapter 7 as we'll now look at the passage. What we read here is the part of the epilogue or the closing of the Sermon on the Mount. And as we've said, the Sermon on the Mount closes with a warning. False teachers seek to lead you down a false road to destruction, Jesus says in verse 13 and 14, 15 to 20. And Jesus continues on with his warning in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father that's in heaven. For many people will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and in your name cast out devils and in your name done many wonderful works? And then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. The Greek translation is, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You lawless ones. This is not hypothetical. Jesus, sadly, is not giving a hypothetical. He's not saying... It could be that on Judgment Day, this is going to happen. He's prophesying that this is going to happen. Many are going to say to him on that day, Lord, and be shocked. The day of judgment, the Jews call this day Yom Hadin, the day that God judges. The Jews were looking forward to it themselves. As Christians, we also believe in the day of judgment. We believe that there's coming a day when God will judge. That life isn't going to go on the way it has been going on for you the last X amount of years you've been alive. That there's a future and a day when things are radically going to be different. You can read it in the book of Revelation. God is going to call people to judgment. He's going to call you to judgment. As long as you're only thinking about this life and that life is just going to go on as it's always been going on, you're not seeing the reality of your life. God created you in his image. God given, has given you commandments. God will judge you. J.C. Ryle said, The day of judgment will reveal strange things. I think that if there's one thing emphasized here by Jesus is that... The Day of Judgment will be an a extremely shocking day. That will be the, the main thing about the Day of Judgment. Some of us won't be shocked because of our faith in Jesus. But most people on the Day of Judgment will be shocked. First of all, that Jesus is the judge. Many people will say to me, Lord, and I will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. God has given to Jesus to judge. God and Jesus are so perfectly one that he would do that. To be known by Jesus is to be known by God. Isn't it amazing that God has given it to Jesus to judge? And all the people in the world who don't even believe in Jesus will be shocked on Judgment Day when they realize that Christ Jesus is really the Son of God and he's now their judge. Isn't that an amazing thing? All the atheists in the world, all the Muslims in the world, all the Jews in the world, all the Buddhists in the world, all the Hindus in the world, they'll realize that Jesus is the judge. What a horrible day that will be for them. However, a greater shock than that will be, as Jesus says, when those who profess to believe in Jesus are shocked to find out that Jesus never knew them. Jesus anticipates that many will have professed to believe in him. When Jesus said this, it was obviously 2,000 years ago, not many people knew his name. But today, much of the world professes faith in Jesus. And by the time of the end, many will be able to say, Lord, Lord, to him. And yet he will say to them, I never knew you. So he, he foresees the future of, of, of the earth when he says this. Those who say Lord to, Lord to him are astonished. The emphasis in verse 22 is not, yeah, but look at all the good things I, I've done, per se. The emphasis is, but didn't I do it all in your name, in your name, in your name? Don't you know me? Don't I know you? I was doing these things for your sake. I was doing these things for your honor. I thought I was doing these things by your power. The astonishment. They're not trying to just say, well, come on, look at all the good things I did. Let me in. They're saying, what? I thought this whole time it was about you. And he says, I never, not at one time, knew you. What a shocking thing. They thought wrong. The day of judgment will reveal strange things. Now, what's going on here? How do we avoid being deceived ourselves? How do we know that as Christians who profess Jesus as our Lord, we also won't be found shocked on the judgment day? Are there any clues in the text? And there are. I'll give four briefly. First of all, every one of us should realize that just saying that Jesus is Lord is not enough. It's very easy to say that Jesus is Lord. It's very easy to believe that he's the Messiah or that he's even the Son of God. It's very easy because there's a lot of proof to believe in that. A person could do their homework. A person could read up on history. A person could scrutinize the Bible and say, is this really historically accurate? and you'd be surprised to find how much proof there is to believe in Jesus. No wonder many people believe in Jesus. But there's something more than just believing that Jesus was a historical figure, maybe that he even came from heaven, and that he's the Lord. You must do, number two, the second clue, you must do the will of the Father which is in heaven. That's how you know you're not deceived. Whether you've done the will of the Father which is in heaven. Now, just like the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes these statements and doesn't explain them. But whatever the will of the Father is, it has to do with righteousness. Whatever the will of the Father is, it has to do with righteousness. Because entrance into the kingdom of God has to do with righteousness. And notice at the end of verse 23, the opposite of doing the will of God, of the will of the Father If you haven't done the will of the Father, he says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawless. So doing the will of the Father is the opposite of being lawless. It must have to do with righteousness. And number four, until you do the will of the Father, you are not known by Christ. When you do the will of the Father, then the Son knows who you are. So to put it this way, Doing the will of the Father is the opposite of doing lawlessness, and only until you do it are you known by Christ, and you don't need to be shocked on Judgment Day. So can you guess what the will of the Father is? What do you think the will of the Father is? What is God's will? Strangely enough, many people think that the will of the Father is obedience to the law. What a strange, strange... Belief, that is. Many will say, Lord, Lord, they say. Yeah, it's one thing to say, Jesus, is Lord, but you've got to keep the commandments and the law. What should you ask them? Do you? <laughs> Have you ignored everything Jesus has been saying? Have you ignored everything the apostles said about the purpose of the law? Surely that can't be it. We all agree that it has to do with righteousness and avoiding lawlessness, but the question is, how do I do righteousness and how do I vo- avoid lawlessness? And the answer is not to obey the law. The answer is not to look to your works and try to keep the commandments. The way to do righteousness and to avoid lawlessness is by believing the gospel of the kingdom, is by believing the good news of Jesus Christ, that it isn't by works that you are righteous, which is a very strange thing indeed, but it is through faith, In the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, that a person is righteous before God. Isn't that an amazing mystery? The way to be righteous and avoid lawlessness is not by your works, as everyone thinks. But it's by this sacrifice of Christ and faith in him. That's the difference between the Pharisees' doctrine and the gospel. The Pharisees shut the kingdom of God because they pointed to your works. And the gospel flings the kingdom of God wide open for everybody, no matter how sinful you are, because Jesus Christ died for us and says, Come and believe. But what's strange to men now will be strange to them on the day of judgment. See, most people in the world think that whole gospel thing is way strange. Righteousness not by your works? I don't get it. And that's why on Judgment Day they're going to be shocked. Because on Judgment Day they're going to realize that that was the truth. They're going to say, Whoa! And it's strange on Judgment Day because it's strange now. It's shocking on Judgment Day because it's shocking now. Our gospel is strange. If your gospel doesn't seem like foolishness to the world, it's not the gospel. And lastly, in closing, verse 24 to 27, this very well-known parable. I want you to notice that it is connected to what goes before by the word therefore. This is not a standalone parable. This parable is a source of confusion for many because they miss the point of the Sermon on the Mount and they don't connect the dots. They don't connect how the parable fits with the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, I say unto you, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man that builds his house on the rock. And again, the expression that does the sayings of mine seems to throw people off again. And they think, well, that sounds like, you know, whoever does, keeps all the commandments and everything that he said in the Sermon on the Mount. But it only sounds like that when you're not being careful and noticing what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. The Sermon on the Mount, these sayings need to be broken down. What's the message on the Sermon on the Mount? What are the components of the Sermon on the Mount? These are the components of the Sermon on the Mount. First of all, Jesus talks about blessings to the most unlikely, to the weak. That's the opposite of the Pharisee's doctrine. Whom Jesus pronounces blessings upon... The Pharisees didn't. The next part of the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus expositing what true obedience and piety looks like. What the law requires and what true piety looks like. Again, the opposite of the Pharisees. The Pharisees didn't teach the law required that and their piety didn't look like the piety that Jesus taught. Jesus goes on to exhort us to trust in the goodness of God, another thing the Pharisees didn't teach. The Pharisees didn't teach that you should throw yourself upon the mercy of God, but that you should get what you deserve through your obedience. Jesus teaches us not to judge one another, the opposite of the Pharisees, who looked down their noses at those who they didn't think were keeping the commandments, but they had a big beam in their own eye. And then Jesus warns us multiple times to enter into the kingdom of God And that to enter into the kingdom of God, you must have a righteousness that is greater than the scribes and the Pharisees. This is what the Sermon on the Mount is about. So when Jesus says, you do these sayings of mine, he doesn't mean every specific little commandment in the Sermon on the Mount, but the overall message contained in several specific commandments. Seek first the kingdom of God. You must have a righteousness greater than the scribes and the Pharisees. Enter through the narrow gate. Beware of false prophets. Do the will of my Father that is in heaven. A.B. Bruce says, To gospel ears, the word has a legal sound, but the, but the doing of Christ, the doing that Christ had in view, meant the opposite of legalism and Pharisaism. That's very important. If you do what Jesus says, it will be the opposite of what the Pharisees tell you to do. And so he says, you need to hear what I say and do it, not what the Pharisees say. The whole point of the parable, brothers and sisters, is actually not about what you do, but about wisdom versus foolishness. I want to make that very clear and emphatic. The point of the parable is not doing. It's not about the kind of house you make It's not even so much about doing a foundation, but it's about thinking about where you're going to build your life, whether you're going to build it upon a rock or whether you're going to build it upon sand, whether you're going to be wise or whether you're going to be foolish, whether you're going to be thoughtful or whether you're going to be inconsiderate. He doesn't say here that the man thought that sand would be a good foundation. It's that he didn't consider the storm that was coming. And this is the sad reality, is that for many people in this world, they do not give careful thought to their religion. They do not give careful thought to their faith. They may be born into it. Well, I was born a Muslim. I'll always be a Muslim. Is that what Jesus would say to us here? Just stick with the religion you're born in. What Jesus is challenging each one of us to do is to consider thoughtfully What we believe. Most people consider what their religion is for the wrong reasons. I've chosen to be in this religion because it makes me feel good, or I've chosen to be in this religion because it makes me close to my family. Jesus wants us to carefully consider what we believe in light of the judgment day, which he represents as a storm and not as a little storm, but a storm that's characterized with heavy rain, flooding, and strong winds. That's a pretty big storm, isn't it? He's not saying, yeah, there's going to be this semi-strong storm that's going to come and test you, and if you've been pretty good, you're going to be okay. This is the kind of storm that's so intense it'll wipe everything away that isn't founded upon a certain thing, a rock. The house will be thoroughly tested, and this is the point. On Judgment Day... The law will require from you absolute perfection. What are you hoping in? Your own works or the work of God through Jesus Christ on your behalf? What's crazy is that common sense isn't so common in this world when it comes to spiritual things. Of course, if someone's going to build a house, they're going to think about these things. But when it comes to religion and spirituality and faith, most people don't give even an afterthought about what they believe. And that's a great charge from God against men. You don't have an excuse because you know in the natural world you take care to notice these things. Why not in the spiritual world? And so Jesus ends his sermon this way. The Sermon on the Mount captures the essence of the Son of God's teaching. In our... Time in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard the Son of God from heaven. You've heard the one who speaks with authority. You've heard his teaching versus the teaching of the Pharisees, and the teachings of the Pharisees exist today in our world also. He's corrected your thinking. He's encouraged you to trust in God, and he's warned you about entering into the kingdom of God. So let me ask you, have you considered where you're going to spend your eternity? Have you considered Yom Hadin, Judgment Day. Have you considered when God comes and judges whether you're righteous or not? Are you righteous? What is the basis of your righteousness? Have you believed in the gospel for your righteousness or are you seeking to be righteous by your own works? Take heed how you build. Take heed how you believe. For you only have one shot at this. There's no other chance after death. After Judgment Day. You got one shot. One shot. What are you going to build your house on? On Jesus or yourself? I hope that you would build upon him and do the will of God for it's God's will for you, it's God's desire for each one of you that you'd be saved. I'll just end with that fitting stanza from the hymn that we sing so often. My hope is built on nothing less Than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that it is your will that none should perish but that all should come to repentance. And we thank you that while we were yet sinners and while we stood on our own and you knew that the storm was coming and it would destroy every one of us and we had no excuse that you loved us so much that you would save us by giving your own son to die for our sins and giving us that hope, that strong consolation through grace. And I pray, Lord, that each one of us here would in the end be saved, that the impossible would, be, would happen in our life through your strength and your grace. Thank you for the Sermon on the Mount. Thank you for the words of the Son of God. May we hear him who speaks with authority and who speaks as one who knows. We praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen.